Welcome to the Actionable Futurist podcast, a show all about the near-term future with practical and actionable advice from a range of global experts to help you stay ahead of the curve. Every episode answers the question, what's the future of? With voices and opinions that need to be heard. Your host is international keynote speaker and actionable futurist, Andrew Grill. My guest today is one of Australia's best-known mezzo-soprano opera singers, Deborah Humble. She's also been a friend of mine for over 35 years. Born in Bagner, Wales, Deborah grew up in Adelaide, Australia. She received her musical and vocal training first at the Elder Conservatory of the University of Adelaide and later at the University of Melbourne. Deborah was a member of the Young Artist Program of the Victoria State Opera and in 2002 became a principal artist with Opera Australia at the Sydney Opera House. She was also the winner at the beginning of her career of the prestigious Dame Joan Sutherland Scholarship in 2004. And the following year, she became a principal mezzo with the State Opera of Hamburg. In 2008, she was a finalist of the International Wagner Competition of the Seattle Opera. In 2009, she was included in the Who's Who of Australian Women. And since 2010, she's been a freelance artist and she's performed over 60 operatic roles worldwide. In 2016, after 25 years living in Europe, Deborah returned to live in Sydney. And today, she's coming to us live from Bricefield Estate in the Hunter Valley, where she lives with her partner, Dr. Bruce Caldwell. Welcome, Deborah. Thank you, Andrew. A huge career there. There's a lot to unpack. There's actually some stuff we didn't discuss. And I've known you, as I said, for 35 years when we both finished school in Adelaide, Australia. So you were born in Wales. What's been your journey to Australia? Well, I was born in Wales. My father, who is from Adelaide, was living in the United Kingdom during the 1960s and studying surgery. He did a fellowship of surgery in Edinburgh and he met my mother, who was an English nurse. And so they were working, they were married and working at the Clandadno Hospital. And I was born not far from there in St David's Hospital in in Bangor. And four months after I was born, they decided to return to Adelaide and that's where I grew up. Singing is a very definite career. It's been a, a lifelong passion for you. When did you decide to become an opera singer? Well, it was fairly early on, actually. I was always interested in music. I started learning the piano when I was seven. And I sang in school choirs and I always had a, an, an interest in music. I've always wondered where the urge to be an opera singer came from since we weren't a particularly musical family. And later on when I was studying, my colleagues would tell stories about how they used to stand around the piano and have sing songs at home. And I thought, well, we never did anything like that. Uh, we never went to the theatre as a family. We did have a record player. And I think there was an Elvis Presley album and maybe maybe Shirley Bassey album, something by Helen Reddy and Nana Muscuri, but that was about the extent of it. And music was only listened to on very special occasions. I'm not quite sure where this urge came from, but it was it was very definite. And there are a few opera singers in my father's family. And I always wondered if it was perhaps a little bit genetic. And in fact, recently I was asked to partake in a genetic study being done by some researchers in Melbourne. And so I'm eagerly awaiting those results because I've always wanted to know the answer to that question. So as someone who likes singing, there are different ways you could take. You could have been a pop singer, you could have sung classical. Opera is a very definite genre of singing. Why did you choose the opera route? Yeah, that's a good question. I had a big voice 
I was a teacher there for a while, uh, while I was training in opera. And I remember some of the students used to put their hands over their ears. And I obviously had quite a loud voice, so maybe it was something to do with that. I was also quite interested in languages. And obviously, opera is something that utilises that passion, that skill, if you like. I guess I just fell into classical music. I've never been a big pop music fan, I have to say. I suppose you're right about having the big voice because I was at some opera here in London recently and one of the principals actually uh, wasn't able to sing. They had someone substituting for them and they said they'd just been to Glyndebourne and their voice was worn out. I was reminded that the whole way that opera singers sing, you have to project your voice because back in the day, they didn't have amplification and and in many pure operas these days, you, you will hear the voice as is. What's the technique like to train to throw your voice to the very back of the auditorium? Well, actually, we never use amplification in opera. And a very great deal of training does go into that. A good opera singer should not should never get worn out, in fact, because if you have a really good technique, which has taken years and years to build, and if you have good stamina and good control over your voice, then you should be able to sing what you need to sing. And it's, it's one of the most wonderful things or the most exciting things, I think, about live opera is that a lot of people think it is amplified and it is, it is not, and you have to work out how to throw your voice and project the story that you're telling at the same time right to the back row of the of what can sometimes be very large auditoriums. I've heard you sing live many times, and it is a real skill to be able to throw that. As a public speaker, we cheat because we use amplification, but it's always about how do you project your character to the back of the room. And I know from my role in speaking, there's a lot of rehearsal and preparation that goes behind that before you see the 40 or 50 minutes on stage from my point of view and several hours from your point of view. Take me through what's really required, you know, a huge thing like Wagner's ring cycle. What level of preparation is required from the day they say, right, you've got the part? By the time the audience sees the live performance, the final product, it has taken months and sometimes years to get to that point. So first of all, if you're learning a role for the first time, a foreign language role, it can take months, sometimes years in that kind of repertoire. And Wagner is actually considered by many to be the pinnacle of the romantic repertoire. And so you would start by doing the memorisation and that can take months and months and then you have to sing it what we call into your voice so you know you've got to get the body underneath and it's all about the stamina and you've got to go to a language coach because if you're like me and English is your first language then singing any of these operas in the vernacular is foreign language and it takes years and years to hone those skills then you have to do some background reading you know where does the story come from what's Wagner about what's Norse mythology Who are the other characters? What are you saying? What are they saying to you? There's all of that. And then there's music rehearsal, maybe up to two months for a ring cycle of rehearsal, production with the director, music with the conductor and various coaches and pianists. Then, of course, there's costume fittings and and makeup design and set design and set manufacturing. And there are hundreds and hundreds of people that go into putting on such a, a large scale event. I think we don't realise it's the same with big set pieces for theatre. There's so much behind the scenes. So next time you complain about the price of that ticket, think about all the work that's gone in. And as you say, sometimes literally years of rehearsal. So you spent a lot of your career in Hamburg, one would say the home of opera, and you were very lucky that you worked with the acclaimed Australian conductor, Simone Young. Was it exciting, as I would have thought, to live and work in the the centre of Hamburg? Tell me about the experience there. It was like a dream come true, really. It was something like a small child in a in a candy store. I mean, as you would remember, growing up in Adelaide, you know, cu- culture, shall we say, or o- opera in particular, was was not a big thing. I think when I was growing up, there might have been two 
possibly three operas put on in South Australia a, a year. And certainly there was not the money in Australia uh, at the time to bring famous artists from all over the world. And so unlike people I met in Europe, I didn't grow up hearing my favourite artists. I had to go out and buy a CD if I wanted to do that and listen. And all of a sudden there were these people that I'd been listening to all my life uh, standing on the stage next to me. And uh, it was like having a singing lesson every night of your life, to be, to be honest, in the most wonderful way. And then, of course, as time went by, it became a little less overwhelming and suddenly one day I was considered a colleague of, of these people. But the, the whole opera world is completely different. Opera houses are taxpayer-funded, for example. There's a lot of, lot of funding. There are over 400 opera houses in Germany. There's an opera house in every small town, in every village. In the large cities, there are two or three opera houses. So there's an awful lot more work around. And then there's an awful lot of opportunity to go out and see what everybody else is doing and to, to learn by watching. And I think I realised that along with the music history, you could go to the church in Leipzig where Bach had composed a cantata and you could go to the place where Mahler had composed a symphony or where Wagner had written Parsifal and you can't do any of that here in Australia. And I realised that that's what I'd been missing really, a, a sense of real connection to, to the history of what I was trying to learn. And I know being an expat in London, I've been here 15 years and you were overseas for a lot longer than I was. It takes a while to become accepted, and especially if you're from, as you say, an English-speaking country. What was it like being an expat and was it unusual for an Australian mezzo to be in Hamburg or was it expected? I think uh, when Simone Young took over the management of the Hamburg Opera Company, there were two of us, actually, that were on contract. There was another soprano, actually also from Adelaide, Miriam Gordon-Stewart, and she was a contracted soprano. And there were various Australians that were coming as guest artists. Life wasn't very easy for us, I have to say, when we got there because I suppose in some ways we'd, we'd taken jobs that perhaps uh, it was considered that a German might have gotten. And Simone did tell us, you're not going to have to be just good. You're going to have to be really, really good. And I expect 110% effort, which is what I always tried to give her. They called us the Kangaroo Club. I'm not sure they meant that uh, always in the, in, the, in the nicest way. I remember saying, I'm going to live in Hamburg. And everyone said, oh, dear, that'll be terrible. The people up there, they're, they're as cold as the weather. And, in fact, it was a much more formal culture. And I made a lot of mistakes when I first arrived uh, because we as Australians, we have a very informal nature. But I have to say that when people got to know you, I made some of the best friends I've ever made in my life in Germany. And their interest in culture and my interest in their language and culture, you know, it was, it was a really nice reciprocal experience. I've always said that the expats, people that leave a great country like Australia, you don't come over here to fail. You come to be even more successful. And yes, it's a lot harder. I was at an event on the weekend with a bunch of other Australians and the ones that are there really have that, that spirit where we want to make a goal of it. You know, I love Australia, but I may never go back to live. You've done that. You've had your stint overseas. What was the trigger to head back to Oz? Well, I met Bruce in 2015. In some ways, I'm very glad I came back when I did, bearing in mind what's happened recently. Was it a good career move? No, not really. At the time, I thought, of course, it doesn't really matter where I live now because I can travel and people, I'm established enough in my career now that I can still go and do my overseas engagements. 
And of course, that's all been rather scuppered. I guess the most difficult thing for me about coming back is, is the mindset. You know, I look at a map and I think, gosh, I'm way down there. I felt so connected with the world when I lived in Europe. I felt like I was in the centre of the universe, if you like, and I miss things about that. I miss the geographical nearness of everything, being able to get on a plane and go somewhere to a different country for the weekend, somewhere with a different language, with a different culture. I miss history and architecture and, and music. I miss people's knowledge of all of those things. Life is more simple here. Everything's easier when you're familiar with the culture, when you're familiar with the language. There are definitely aspects about living in Europe that I, I really miss. Well, that's kind of one of the reasons I'm here. With the lockdowns here in London, we were forced to stay local. And so I've done a lot of walking. I think I've walked every radial from South Kensington known. But one thing I did was I started looking up and I started looking at the architecture around London. And I started buying these guidebooks that would self-guide you around there. So I absolutely agree with you. While I love Australia, most things are fairly new that are in the built environment, whereas here things are thousands of years old. You touched on the issues of the last couple of years. We're recording this in September 2021, if people are listening in the future. I want to talk about resilience. You thought you'd be able to just fly back and forward to Europe to perform, and, and clearly at the moment that's not possible. How have you been impacted and how have you really worked around those challenges that you've had? I think resilience is a really good word and I think it's something that when you've lived, I've lived in in Paris, in Bologna, in Hamburg. So I've, I've lived in three different, four in England, four different countries, three different languages. It has been wonderful, a wonderful, exciting, um, fulfilling life. But there have also been moments of great loneliness and struggle, really. I think that, you know, this all makes you much stronger. And I think, you know, artists are by nature quite creative. We are also used to rejection and we're used to criticism and we're used to not always being able to do exactly what we would really like to be doing for whatever reason. I've survived COVID like everybody else. It's been hard to be in lockdown for this long. I have had all my work since um, the middle of June almost to next Easter has just been cancelled because we can't travel interstate here if we live in New South Wales, can't be in closed venues. In fact, at the moment we can't really do anything. In fact, aside from Bruce, I haven't seen anybody for the last seven weeks. So what have I been doing? Well, I, I think we start to think outside the box. Artists have to start thinking, well, if we're not going to be able to sing for 3,000 people in a, in a large theatre, well, how are we going to earn a living? And so I think we're doing smaller scale works. We're thinking about more, more intimate venues with smaller audiences and I don't think that that necessarily means it's, it's, it's worse or better. It's just it's different. In some ways, you know, they call it a crisis. I mean, what's a crisis? A crisis is a turning point. You know, you can go one way or the other. And I think I hope for the arts that when I hope we're able to recover and I, I hope that we're able to move in, in different directions and, and continue to, to express ourselves the way we need to. Now, I know one thing you did a while ago when the restrictions were a little bit more open, you actually established the Bricefield Music Festival. Tell me more about that. We have a 50-acre property here and part of our vision when we bought this estate three years ago was music, music, friends, food and wine. They're the things that, you know, they're our passions and our hobbies. And so I thought, well, now's a good time to do it. Numbers were restricted. You could only have 20 people in your home when I put the first festival on. Really what I wanted to do was employ unemployed artists and colleagues. 
I've done two festivals since then and luckily the second time we didn't have the number restrictions and I've managed to get 25 artists, local artists, back into employment. Of course, everyone couldn't wait to be back in the audience and it was, it was all rather emotional, to be honest, but that's part of our vision here for the, for the future, larger scale uh, music events, bringing people together and introducing the community out here to things that perhaps they've never heard before. Uh, we did a, an opera lunch at one of the um, local wineries and a lot of people came up to me and said, we've never heard opera before, when's the next one? You know, that's important. It's not about dumbing it all down, but it's about it's about making these sorts of things accessible, I think, to your community. And that gets Bruce and I involved in the community, gets the community to know who we are and what we're about. And it's only been positive, really. Now, I've been fortunate to visit Bryceville. I was there beginning of 2019. I think you'd newly moved in there. For those of our listeners that don't know where you are, tell us a bit more about the property and about the region you're in, the Hunter Valley. The Hunter Valley is a little over two hours north of Sydney, 45 minutes from Newcastle. And Newcastle is the biggest city in Australia that's not a capital. It's a tourist area. There is over 180 cellar doors out here, acres and acres of vines. There are restaurants and cafes and a lot of people get married up here. It's, it's, it's a real weekend destination. It's a lovely community. We inherited 18 acres of derelict and neglected vineyard. Well, I want to use it as a segue to going from Wagner to vines. Tell me more about the vines. You said you've rejuvenated them. You're now a vineyard owner. You're starting to make wine. Tell me more. When we saw the property back in 2017, it had actually, it had only had two owners. So there was the original owner builder and he had sold it to a Chinese chap actually who had never really lived at the property. And so the house was a little unloved and the vineyard had been completely neglected. So we had 18 acres of Verdello, Semillon and Chardonnay. We only grow white wine here. Part of the project, if we wanted the house, you know, we had to really take on the, the renovation of the vineyard, which I have had absolutely nothing to do with. I do all the house and the music. Bruce took on that project. We just produced one of Australia's first Pecorino wines this year, Vintage 2021, which is an unusual Italian white variety, which he had the foresight to plant, does well in hot climates. We have Semillon and Chardonnay coming. Uh, he's planted Fiano, which is also a, another unusual Italian variety. So where we have plans for maybe a small cellar door and, of course, we can use the wine at our, our musical events. So really it's a lifestyle, I guess. And because I was on the road all the time during my career, I said to him last night, I have never spent so much time at any home I've ever had in my life until, <laughs> until now because I was always on an aeroplane somewhere else. In some ways it's quite pleasant because I'm able to do some of the things now that I wished I could when I was working, like be at home at night and cook a nice meal, have a glass of wine, tend to a garden. There was no point having a garden before I was never home to look after it. So there, there are all sorts of bonuses that have come with this strange period in all of our lives. I guess look at the positives. I know also you've done some branding, given it's a brand new wine, it's got the Bricefield name, you've even done some logos and some bottle designs. We talked about resilience. You've done things you probably never would have done before had the lockdown not forced you to do something different. Part of thinking outside the box. So I'm, I'm not able to work at the moment. So my teaching's all moved online. So there's plenty of time to, I think, think creatively. And that's been one of the big, big pluses. So we came up with a logo for the um, wine label. Bruce is a surgeon. So we had the snake insignia 
and we superimposed it onto a, a winged helmet. People say, why a winged helmet? Well, the Norse winged helmet is a common symbol used for Wagnerian opera singers. It's a reference back to Norse mythology. And so, you know, it's a symbol of our combined passion and commitment for what we're doing and the fact that, you know, our, our professions are extremely different. But as Bruce said, we both work in a theatre. Now, I know one of your other passions is cooking, and I know from first-hand experience you're a wonderful cook, but you've actually mixed your singing with cooking. You did an opera channeling Julia Child. Many people have seen the movie Julia of Julia. Tell me more about that. And that was a, a project born of this COVID crisis. A couple of years ago, a friend and a colleague of mine sent me a YouTube clip and he said, have a look at this. It's an American mezzo-soprano singing an opera called Bon Appetit, which was based on an episode of Julia Child's cooking show, which was called The French Chef. And I had a look and I, I was highly amused by this short half an hour opera just with piano, but I had all sorts of other music to learn and I put it on top of the piano and, and sort of left it there for a while. And then in lockdown last year, I thought, you know, I'm going to learn this because this is a small-scale opera, it's short, I can do this in people's kitchens, I can do this in restaurants, I can do this in cabaret venues. And so I started rehearsing. The kitchen was an absolute mess for <laughs> several months while I tried to work out how on earth to bake a chocolate cake, le gâteau au chocolat l'éminence brune, while I was singing at the same time and I had to try and fit in all the actions in the short space of time that the composer had given me to perform them. So I'm um, beating egg whites and tempering chocolate and um, sifting flour and greasing cake pans. We did get a couple of performances of that in before this current lockdown. Opera Australia made me a great wig. I thought I actually looked not, not that dissimilar to Julia Child, really. <laughs> really. Um, we did it at a couple of food festivals. It's quite nice because there's an intimacy in that sort of performance that we don't get when we're on a big stage where the audience is so far away. And when you're so close to people, you can see their reactions. And if they laugh or if they react somehow, you can respond. And like all good live theatre and like all good cooks will tell you, not everything always goes according to plan. And when you put the two together, things very often <laughs> go a little bit haywire. And that's part of the fun, you know, the improvisation. And, and I, I'm looking forward to rescheduling those performances. We actually had one at uh, Benelong Restaurant at the Sydney Opera House planned and there's a very famous chef there called Peter Gilmore. I was being asked how I felt about that quite large restaurant and doing it there and I thought my main concern was that my chocolate cake wouldn't be up to Peter Gilmore's standards. There are quite a few bookings for that in the future so I'm looking forward to channeling Julia again. I've had the pleasure of eating at that restaurant. For those of you not from Australia, it's in the small shell of the Sydney Opera House if you look at it. How did that come about? Because that's a pretty prestigious place to perform a crazy cooking opera. Benelong is run by the Fink Group. Hannah Fink, I met in the past because when I've worked at the Opera Australia in the Opera House or in the Concert Hall with the Sydney Symphony Orchestra, she has often hosted dinners for sponsors and principals in the private dining at Benelong. And then I noticed that she uh, very creatively, I thought, was uh, planning a classical music concert series at the restaurant. So they were doing jazz on Sundays and classical music on Wednesday evenings. Another colleague alerted me to this and said, why not call Hannah? So I did, and she was just so enthusiastic. We're just bitterly disappointed that it didn't go ahead in July. Both sides are really keen to do this again, maybe more than once. It's sold out. I think it'll be a good night's entertainment. I do a second half of the show, 
and I've learned a lot of songs about food and wine. I didn't know there were so many songs to sing about food and wine and some of them are quite funny and entertaining in keeping with the mood of the evening. My favourite one is Lime Jello Marshmallow Cottage Cheese Surprise uh, by a cabaret called, artist called uh, William Balcom. I've learned songs about giant marrows. I have learned uh, songs about um, Pomery Champagne, all kinds of strange things that we're sort of putting together into like, like a cabaret style show. So we're both performers and things can go wrong and you have to be very, very dynamic about when things go wrong and recover. You must have a heap of stories about things that have happened during performances. Oh, things can and do go wrong all the time. In fact, I used to say to my parents, if you knew what went on, you would never pay the money (laughs) for a ticket to see a performance. Um, Part of being a performer, of course, is covering all these things up. If you can, sometimes you can't. Um, There's a very famous story actually about a performance of Tosca, uh, I think, at the Chicago uh, Opera, the Lyric Opera of Chicago. At the end of Tosca, the soprano jumps off the ramparts of the castle uh, and kills herself because her lover Mario has just been shot. Usually, I guess, you jump off onto a mattress and you practice that. Stagehands put a mattress there so it's all occupational health and safety. The uh, stage crew decided to help this soprano by putting a trampoline there and making it a little bit easier for her so she jumps off the ramparts in this so dramatic such a dramatic moment at the end of the opera and fell quite heavily and bounced up (laughs) straight over the top of the ramparts not only once but twice Uh, which was uh, and everyone laughed of course so you know it was like this whole three-hour build-up to this moment was was completely ruined that's that's quite a famous story there was a very small role I did right at the beginning of career. I mean, literally three short lines in Electra. So quick and the music is very, very difficult and it's very dark and bloody on the stage and it's not a very nice scene. The stage manager said, right, Deborah, go now. And I ran on the stage and all I looked in the orchestra pit and all I could see was a conductor looked like he was doing this. I had no idea where we were and I thought, you know, I'd better sing because in a minute it's going to be over. <laughs> not going to have done anything so I fish mouth and ran off the other side of the stage having sung nothing my big moment gone and the really sad thing is no one even noticed (laughs) one of the other things that comes to mind is yeah I think it was even maybe a production of My Fair Lady and a beautiful costume on and a long strand of unknotted pearls being up close and, and personal with a male singer and he had large buttons on his jacket and as I moved away, it must have been that my strand of pearls had got caught on one of the buttons of his jacket. And as I moved away, this, the pearls broke, pulled and broke, and they just all dropped on the floor and rolled down the stair, the grand staircase. And I thought, oh, no, they're going to fall into the orchestra pit. But it's amazing that you can think of all these things while you're still performing. And, of course, I guess that's what makes live theatre exciting to audiences because let's face it, if you want some sort of perfection, you can go out and buy a recording and, and listen to it at home. And people are usually fairly generous when it comes to things that go wrong. Now, one thing about being an opera singer, and I, I deliberately call you a diva, you're a lovely diva though, are the costumes. You must have worn some of the most amazing outfits. Do they get chosen for you? Do you get to design them? Tell me how they come about. Wearing a costume should feel good, I think. You know, it's hard enough to get out on stage and sing in front of thousands of people as it is without feeling bad about the way you look. And not, I think not all costume designers I've encountered understand that. Look, I've worn everything. I've been bald. 
I've been a boy. I played Hansel in Hansel and Gretel, so I've worn little Lederhosen. I've been a 101-year-old Chinese sultan with a big, big beard. In fact, I looked in the mirror after about four hours of getting ready for that role and I, I, there was no way I could have recognised myself. Uh, I've been an Egyptian princess. Mezzo-sopranos don't get the glamorous roles, Andrew. We're not the person at the end of the opera that gets to die dramatically or gets to walk away with the tenor. We say witches, bitches and britches for mezzo-sopranos. So we're often the ugly sister, the wicked witch, you know, the old maid, the nanny. Britches refers to a thing called pants rolls. So mezzo-sopranos often play boys in some periods of opera. And the most famous example of that is probably Cherubino in The Marriage of Figaro, where a mezzo-soprano plays a 15-year-old page boy. And so witches, bitches and britches, that's what we say. So mezzo-sopranos is the unglamorous side of the female operatic repertoire. You've performed in operas all around the world. Are audiences the same in how they watch and react to opera or are there cultural differences? Oh, I think there are very much cultural differences. And that was another shock when I got to Europe because audiences in Australia are profoundly polite. They clap politely if they think it's good and they clap politely if they think it's not so good. They're pretty well behaved, the average Australian audience. And then you go to Europe and all of a sudden people are booing if they don't like the production or if they don't like a particular singer. They stamp their feet. They shout. They jump to their feet if they love something and give spontaneous standing ovation. They are really much more passionate about their opera, I guess, because they, they grew up with it. The other thing I noted about European audiences is that they were younger. Not all operas are suitable for families and for children, but there were always a lot of young people, young families there with their parents. And so I think the culture of going to the theatre starts at a much younger age. And tickets are also much less expensive in Europe than they are here. It's a very expensive night out if you go to the Sydney Opera House. That's one of the really good things that I noticed, that this whole, this whole culture of, of the art starts a lot younger, so educating the next generation, if you like. I think the weather also plays a part. If it's snowing and it's minus 8 degrees, it's really lovely to go and sit in a nice warm theatre and, and listen to wonderful music on the weekend, whereas here I think, you know, the sun is shining, people would probably much rather go out and have a picnic or go to the beach. So I, there, are, there are definitely differences. Yeah, it was, it's pretty exciting. Even if you get booed, I remember once in uh, Germany, the production of something I was in, not the singers, but the production was terribly booed. They clearly hated this production. And we were side stage after having bowed and uh, Simone said, right, off you go again. I said, oh, I'm not going out there again. She said, oh, yes, you are. She said, this will be on page two of the newspaper tomorrow and all publicity is good publicity. <laughs> So, and she was right, this production that everybody hated made, made pretty much headline news. What do you do in that situation? Do you use that as feedback or do you understand why they didn't like it? Was, was it obvious or was it just the style? How do you turn a production around from being booed to adored? You don't, most probably. I mean, there are two aspects to production. There's the music and the singers and there's the, the set design and the pr- production concept. In Europe, audiences distinguish very much between those two things. So they're quite happy to clap the singers and the conductor and the music and acknowledge that that was well done. And then when the director comes on, all hell breaks loose. And occasionally 
there'll be a singer that they're not happy with either. It was just that passion that I'd never seen before in an audience. It really fires you up and makes you feel like you really are part of this culture, part of something important. It doesn't always feel like that, I think, in Australia. It can also be very political in Europe. I remember one of the productions of Hansel and Gretel that was happening in Germany, of course, Hansel and Gretel catch the witch and put her in the oven. And that production was closed down the next day with headlines of nationalism rearing its ugly head again in Germany and the production had to be shut down and reworked to make it socially and politically acceptable to the public. And so, of course, things like that here I'd also never encountered. You spend a lot of time in Hamburg and it's obvious the German culture, the operatic culture is quite passionate, as you said, but other parts of Europe, even the UK, are there real differences there because you're a bit further away from Hamburg? I haven't sung in an opera house in England for a long time. I've mostly done concerts recently in the, in the UK, but I, I think the English are a bit like the Australians, to be honest. And they showed last night at the proms, which was on last week, I think, and then uh, people get pretty excited. But no, I've, I've found English audiences also fairly polite. I mean, I've probably got English colleagues who might vehemently disagree with that or have their own stories to tell. You really are a dynamo. You've really shown, I think, in this episode how resilient you have to be if you're a performer and use all of your talents. It really is a Wagner to Vine story. What's next for you and what advice would you have for young musicians that want to become an opera singer? I'm not sure what's next. Um, we have to come out of this lockdown and then we have to see what the roadmap is back to some kind of normal life. Do I recommend it to young people? I'd recommend it to some young, talented people. What I've really learned is that it's not just about having a great voice or having some vocal ability. It really depends what kind of lifestyle you want to lead. If you want a home and a family and you don't want to miss out on special events and family occasions and you would like to have a dog and, and a nice house and stay in one spot and have some regular routine in your life, then I wouldn't suggest it. Still, most of the time, to be successful, we have to go overseas. You need certain qualities. You have to be able to cope with rejection and, and cope with criticism. You need quite a thick skin, I think. You need a certain type of personality as well. You need to be a good actress or at least to be able to learn to act. Is it for everybody? No, it's not. But if, if it is for you, then it, ha it can be the most rewarding, wonderful life. Has there been one aspect of your career that really has been a defining moment for you, your favourite maybe? It's funny how that it all creeps up on you because one, one moment you're auditioning and you get 99 rejections out of 100 right at the beginning and, and I'm thinking what shall I do with all these pieces of paper that are telling me I'm, I'm not good enough and then all of a sudden you audition for something and say, well, we'd give you this part but you're not old enough and not, your voice is not mature enough and then all of a sudden here I am and it's like, uh, well, we'd give you that role but you're probably a bit past that now. Have you thought of it? Have you thought about doing something else? I'm not quite sure where the where 25 years went. Of course, there have been highlights, but there, there have been lots of highlights. And I guess my pulse rate still goes up when someone rings up and offers me a, a job that I'm, I'm really keen to do. I know it will be time for me to stop when I get a phone call one day and nothing happens. I can't wait to get back to work. I can't wait for the phone to ring. It is my passion. All these other things are wonderful, but that's, that's what I trained really hard to do and that's what I want to get back doing. 
I know you've got a website, DebraHumble.com. You've got the Diva Diary website. I know you're on Instagram. We'll put all those links in the show notes. Debra, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your friendship over the last 35 years. I can't wait to see you in person again. I can't wait to hear you perform again. And good luck with everything that you do and stay resilient and stay a diva. Oh, thank you, Andrew. It's really kind of you to invite me to do this. It's been really great chatting with you. I value the friendship a great deal. Thank you for listening to the Actionable Futurist podcast. You can find all of our previous shows at actionablefuturist.com. And if you like what you've heard on the show, please consider subscribing via your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. You can find out more about Andrew and how he helps corporates navigate a disruptive digital world with keynote speeches and C-suite workshops delivered in person or virtually at actionablefuturist.com. Until next time, this has been the Actionable Futurist Podcast.